Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm back on Zoom with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And today we are absolutely thrilled to welcome as our guest the great Peter Guralnik. Hi, Peter. Well, hi. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here, and I would imagine we, we must go back almost 40 years now in our correspondence, but I think this is the first time we've met. You're absolutely right, Peter. Absolutely right. Now, look, Peter is joining us from his home in Massachusetts and needs no introduction to regular listeners. He's simply one of the greatest music writers that I can think of. I'll merely mention a few of the books that played such a huge part in the musical education of Mark, Martin, and myself. Feel Like Going Home, Lost Highway, Sweet Soul Music, his epic Elvis biography and Dream Boogie, Sam Cooke. Most recently, Peter published the wonderful Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing, which collects superb long-form pieces about such pantheon American artists as Robert Johnson, Merle Haggard, Chuck Berry, Solomon Burke, and less well-known names that I'm always fascinated by, like Lonnie Mack and Delbert McClinton. And of course, we, we may talk about Dick Curlis. Mm -hmm. The new book is very autobiographical, but for those who haven't read it or know less about you than I do, tell us how a white middle-class Bostonian first came to write about Skip James and Howlin' Wolf for Crawdaddy magazine. Or Henry Green, for that matter. But, well, uh, I, I'm going to ask you about Henry Green. <laughs> you know, when I first saw Henry Green written in the list of contents, I thought, well, it can't be that Henry Green. It must be some obscure Delta Blues man that I've never heard of. Anyway. No, no, it was H.V. It was York himself. But no, I, I mean, in a sense, the Henry Green and the Skip James could stand as examples of, I mean, those were the first two interviews I ever did. The Henry Green was in the spring of 63 when I was in England for maybe six months. But basically, the way I, I got into it, I just fell into the blues. A friend of mine and I, a friend of mine named Bob Smith and I, fell into the blues when we were 15 or 16. And it's really hard to say. I mean, uh, at this point, I'm so practiced in not being able to say it that I can really recite it from memory. <laughs> but it's hard, to say, it's hard to say what it is that drew me to this. But Bob's brother came back from the Newport Folk Festival with a whole bunch of LPs. You remember those? And... Among them were some blues records. And Bob and I just picked those up, picked those out, and just absolutely were enthralled. And this was at the time when there were very few blues records out. This was, you know, Lightning Hopkins, Big Bill Bronzy, Ronnie McGee, and Sonny Terry. I'm talking about LPs. We weren't 78 collectors. And I just never looked back. I mean, as uh, Robert Johnson, the blues just turned me around. Yes. And I started writing about it from the moment that uh, I had the opportunity, which is really when the underground press first arose. But I interviewed Skip James on my own, as I had interviewed Henry Green. Skip James, I think, was in 65, maybe. As I had interviewed Henry, Henry Green, I didn't really interview him, I sought him out because I was in such awe, such admiration. And it was something that I felt, as uh, Sam Phillips said, you know, uh, I, I just would never have been able to apologize if I hadn't done it. He said that about starting the recording studio. Uh, I could never look myself in the face. So I did it despite enormous, enormous fear, trepidation, 
jitteriness, shaking, and everything else. I mean, literally, I'm not, I'm not kidding about that. And the Skip James I did because he was in Cambridge. He had been recently rediscovered. And I got in touch uh, with uh, his manager, Dick Waterman, who later became a very good friend. But right then, right at that time, was just one of the cool people who walked into Club 47 without having to wait in line. <laughs> and I told him I was working on a, a story about Skip James for Blues Unlimited with whom I had been in correspondence at that point for probably eight or nine months without having yet seen a copy. I was in touch with both Mike Ledbetter and Simon Napier. And he said, well, that's funny. They just ran a six-part series on Skip James. So I said, oh, oh, well, maybe I'll do it for Blue's World then, which just started. Quick thinking. And anyway, so I did the, I did the interview, and that was really totally for myself at that point. I didn't have it. It did eventually appear in Blue's world and i think it may have partly appeared in crawdaddy but that was when crawdaddy started in 67 sort of the boston boston after dark which became the boston phoenix which was part of this whole underground sort of newspaper thing that had begun with village voice but that went all across the country and that was when i found an outlet and then when people said would you like to write about they might say would you like to write about Jefferson Airplane and won't be great. And I would say, no, no, but what I'd like to, that's what Paul Williams, who was a college student then. And I said, no, listen, if you, if I can write about Skip James, if I can write about Robert B. Williams, if I can write about Buddy Guy, that's what I'd love to do. That's what I want to do. And that's what happened in, in each case. I'm just going to mention the name Samuel Charters here because I know Martin was quite close to to Sam, and I know the country blues was also an important part of your like early blues education. I mean, I assume you knew that, Martin. Yeah, no, I'd known Sam since I was five years old, so he was literally my oldest friend. Um, <laughs> yeah. When he'd come into Dobell's record shop where my dad was working, and my dad just started talking at him, and I think continued for the next 40 years or so talking <laughs> at Sam, but also listening. Um, yeah, that, so- that's, where I, that, that's where I discovered, you know, when I was in England, I would do Bells and uh, Dave Carey's Swing Shop in yeah. Streatham. Yes. Those are the two places I just went all the time. I was living in Cambridge, but I went there all the time. Yeah, they were like a kind of a well that people drew from, if you know, mm-hmm. a kind of secret society almost. And, and, and in fact, so I had heard, you know, that's where I, I got a love of, you know, I was turned around by blues music too at the same, in the same kind of way because of those records. And my dad had a lot of 78s that he, he kind of imported from uh, mostly New Orleans, but, you know, Snooks, Eaklin, people like that. I went down to St. James at Frankfurt. See if my baby's there. She was stretched out on a long white table. So sweet, so cold, so fair. Peter, earlier you talked about Paul Williams and Crawdaddy, and one of the things that occurred to me preparing for this episode was the remarkable fact that you, in a sense, you never joined like the rock revolution. I mean, mm-hmm. you've stayed very, very faithful to a certain kind of pantheon you know, roots music artists. So despite the fact that in the same episode that your Skip James piece was in, I think, you know, you've got Sandy Perlman writing about like rugger rock, you Mm -hmm. know, and you've, you've got, you've got 
as you say, like Jefferson Airplane pieces. You, you you didn't clamber aboard that. You never kind of went to San Francisco. You 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 you've never really written about rock bands. Is that fair to say? Yeah. No. 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 Absolutely. It, it wasn't what moved me. No. <laughs> No, and you've said in in more than one interview that you were as attracted to the life as to the music, that, that you just wanted to be in the presence of these kind of giant figures. I think that was that was something that developed. I don't think I ever could have conceived of it at the time. Mm-hmm. And it was really as I was writing the pieces that make up Lost Highway that I finally had to come to terms with the idea that I, that I wasn't as pure as the driven snow. That I actually, <laughs> I was, you know, I might not lead that life, but I was drawn to it, drawn to being a part of it to the extent that I had any role in it at all. I never really looked to find an active role in it, but the thrill of being, I mean, many of these people, many of the people I wrote about became very close friends. I mean, Solomon Burke did, Sleepy LaBeef did, Johnny Shines did, I mean, a whole variety of people. Uh, somebody like Dan Penn became a, a very good friend, William Bell. But that wasn't something I ever could have envisioned at the time. I mean, you've got to picture, if you can, and I'm sure you can, somebody who was just shaking with uh, self-consciousness and just uh, fear about even entering into an interview uh, situation. And I forced myself to do it because at that time I really believed in the purity of my intentions. That's long since gone. But... Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> But the point was that I, I just, I, I had to do it. Uh, you know, uh, I, again, I come back to that Sam Phillips quote, if I hadn't if I hadn't done it, I would have been the greatest coward on God's green earth. I didn't have the quote then. But that really, it, it was, I just felt compelled to do it. And at the end of, uh, this is just in, still in response to your question, even though it's, I know, very discursive. But <laughs> the point is that at the end of Feel Like Going Home, if you read the original edition, and, and it's continued, I say a fond farewell, you know, goodbye to all that, a fond farewell to all of this. I'm now going to just enjoy the music, put down my notebook, and go back to writing another novel, which I did. Yes. But then th- I think three years later, two or three years later, the devil in the form of Jim Miller, uh, who was the editor of the, the first Rolling Stone Illustrated History of Rock and Roll, is now a philosophy and politics professor, but a great guy. And he said, you know, Waylon Jennings is coming to town. Wouldn't you like it? It's something like this. I may have this slightly off, but you should really write about him. And I didn't really know Waylon Jennings at that point. And I listened to uh, Honky Tonk Heroes and the whole you know, his library of his stuff. And I thought, boy, this would really be interesting. And I went, and interviewed him. And I interviewed Bobby Blue Bland around the same time, also for Jim Miller, who was at the real paper then, and uh, never appeared there. But the thing is that, and that was when I realized was Bobby Bland was my great epiphany, which my kids will kill me for using the word, because they said nobody should ever say epiphany. It should be retired. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was, I, 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 I had been teaching classics at Boston University, and my job had run out. And I thought, I've got to get another job because, you you know, you've got to make a living. Everybody has to make a living, as Jerry Wexler would point out. And uh, <laughs> I interviewed with somebody I knew who was a headmaster of uh, a, an exclusive private school. And I interviewed with him and the head of the English department. And during the same week and maybe on the same day that I was down at the Sugar Shack, it was in the middle of a week where I was interviewing Bobby Blue Bland. And that particular night, Mel Jackson had called for a horn rehearsal 
after the show was over, he was dissatisfied with the sound of the horns. And I waited around until two or three in the morning and it never happened. And, you know, it was just like all the glitter was gone. I mean, all the hookers who didn't have business were just hanging around. And uh, the drug dealers who had done enough business for one night, they were there too. And I just realized I'd rather be in here waiting for a horn rehearsal that never happens <laughs> than teach at this thing. And that was <laughs> when I realized, that was when it hit me, you know, this is my life. This is my world. It's not my it's not my world, but it's a world to which I am, feel so privileged to have access. And that, then I never look back. But Peter, do you think that your subjects somehow got something different from you? you know, that they could sense your kind of involvement or, or interest in their lives that, that went beyond someone just writing a, a short profile? Or I mean, your, your stuff on Charlie Rich is extraordinary because you're there with him. You know, mm-hmm. you're going out to see shows with him. You're you're at his house. You know, there's a kind of closeness that you don't often get in music journalism in this it, to that depth. Well, I I, I, I don't want to compare myself to somebody else. I mean, I don't I don't I don't not looking, but but to me, it was all about. I mean, I was committed. It was, and I am still. It was total immersion. I mean, there was no holdback from my point of view, and there was no interest in making any judgments. What I tried to convey, I wasn't trying to imitate. I wasn't trying to be, you know, the cool half cat or something. I mean, uh, and by that language, I mean a certain amount of irony. But uh, <laughs> you know, I I presented myself as myself. I didn't put on an accent. I didn't, you know, I didn't pretend to be anything other than who I was. Yeah. And I tried to show the respect and the love that I had for the work of the people that I was talking to, and that's what we talked about mostly. And I saw lots of things happen, which I, they, I, I wasn't going to write about. I wasn't writing a gossip column. I wasn't trying to expose anybody. Mm-hmm. And so uh, whether it was Charlie Rich, again, somebody with whom I became very friendly and stopped writing about it as a result, or with Solomon Burke, or with Dick Curlis, I, I, I was inviting them to trust me. And I think that they did come to trust me. Sam Phillips, I mean, it took Sam Phillips 10 years, or no, longer than 10, probably 20 years. I mean, he said to me after I'd known him for about 20 years, he says, you know, my son, my son Knox. Now, let me tell you something. My son Knox. Now, I mean, Knox, my son, <laughs> he fell in love. He fell in love with you. Now, I'm telling you the truth here. He fell in love with you the minute he met you. And then there's a long pause. He says, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> But the point was by the end, and and again, I, to me, it's a question of a world. I mean, when I wrote about Sam Cooke, I felt like I spent ten or fifteen years in Sam Cooke's world, gladly, happily, you know, just elatedly. I mean, I came to know. I mean, J. W. Alexander, L. C. Cooke. I mean, became particularly good friends. Bobby Womack. I met you know Sam's wife Barbara. But it had to do not with star time. No, it didn't have to. It didn't. It had to do with trying to get to know the inner person, and I felt like I was in that world for so long. And again, I'm not. I don't want to be the guy who's you know pats himself on the back so much he gets a broken neck. But I'm not saying, oh, look at me, I'm so great. That that wasn't it at all. But the point is, what I was, I tried to respect the the Sam Cooke biography, for example. To me, is as much about the black community as it is about Sam Cooke. Last Train to Memphis, you know, the first volume of the Elvis is as much about Memphis 
in many ways as it is about Elvis Presley. And that's why I opened with a prologue where Sam Phillips and Dewey Phillips first meet before Elvis has even entered the picture. He's like a freshman in high school. And it, because to get across that, uh, and, and that's what I tried to do was to enter into those worlds. And it was Bobby Blue Bland, who was just such a wonderful artist and such a highly intelligent and resourceful man, but was always plagued by the fact that he couldn't read or write. And which I don't think I said in the, in the chapter, and I don't mm-hmm. mean to use that as a cudgel of any sort, but it made him, he didn't want to, he didn't want to go out. And so to hang around, hang out with him, to hang around with him for a week at the shows, at the, uh, in his hotel room, because he, he did, you know, with his wife, his young wife, it's just, it's a different view than either a discographer's, discographer's view of saying who played, you know, vibes on that record <laughs> or sure. somebody who's looking to, I don't know, expose the deepest darkest secret. I wasn't, I was trying to understand Bobby Lupland and to the yeah. extent I'm not claiming any, it's not the achievement that I'm claiming, but I am claiming the aspiration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, illuminating, you know, your the great thing about your work is, is the kind of decency of the approach, you know, and you're really about illuminating these people's worlds. You know, the, the, Solomon Burke stuff in Sweet Soul Music is just so fascinating and so uh, written with love. It's kind of, uh, you know, a fantastic, a fantastic thing. Well, th- thanks. But, you know, in, in looking to get lost, what I tried to do, and I, because I, from the moment I met him, I felt like Solomon, he was like the greatest meet of all, you know, of my <laughs> life anyway. He had a lot of meetings, you know, a lot of <laughs> great meets. But, uh, and we remained good great friends until his death solomon was the opposite of trump in the sense that you you did, you you had to take him both literally and figuratively and he i mean there was a great truth in everything he said but you didn't necessarily have to think that it took place in exactly those terms <laughs> <laughs> and so that's what i i mean i try to and i and i explain it in, in looking to get lost how over the years you know i saw solomon i mean he was, I would say, with great respect, uh, he was addicted to the con. He simply couldn't pass it up. If there was a chance to make a million dollars in a straightforward way and lose $5,000 through some kind of a con, he would choose the latter. And, it was, uh, and in our, uh, early on, he was trying to get me involved in one of his schemes. I write about this. And eventually I said, Solomon, you know, I really love you. But I don't, I can't play. I don't play. And he says, that's what I respect about you, Pete. You know, he says, you always take the long view. That's what I'm going to do from now on. <laughs> and that didn't quite happen. But, but the point was that, that uh, and so, he, he, you know, he said, okay, I'm never going to do it again. And he, he, and he never did really. I mean, he, he skirted it. Uh, I said, Solomon, you know, if at this point, well, I'm not, I, I won't go any further, but the point was that that's, those are the kind of things, having known him all those years, those are the kind of things that I tried to explore in revisiting, in a, you know, in, in a new, I, I think it's a, uh, a, not a trilogy, but it's a, a triptych you know, uh, or something like that in the new book. But just looking at him from a number of different points of view, but always, always with love, always with respect. Off of my mind I know it's just a matter of time You found somebody new 
I think it's really interesting that what you were saying earlier about wanting to write free of judgment of the things that you're writing mm-hmm. about and just kind of present things, as you were just saying, again, with love, you know, that so comes through in what you write. And it so differentiates your writing about music, about musicians, about scenes and times and places from the kind of critical perspective of, say, like traditional rock journalism. And I think that that makes it a very different experience to read. And I, I, I love that. Oh, thanks. You, thanks. you were described as the anti-Lester Bangs in, a, <laughs> in, in, in an interview you did when Looking to Get Lost came out. And I think your your Wikipedia entry sort of says says something along those lines too. That's, that's not, I mean, I, I don't know. I've never seen the Wikipedia because I, I mean, not because I am unaware of it because I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a bad thing to get caught up in that. But I, <laughs> but I, but I will say that I, I'm well aware that, that isn't always said uncritical, you know. To, to, to <laughs> sure, be, sure. Yeah. I, I mean that that you know. I think some people think, some people feel that if you don't take, I think there's a lot. If you read not between the lines, but for instance, particularly about the music, that there's a good deal of critical analysis in a sense, but it's tucked into the overall thing. But but I think you know some people feel that if you're not if you don't come down and you say boom boom boom. You're not saying anything. I guess I don't agree with that. No, I mean, you're totally sharp about in the Bobby Blue bland portrait that you paint. You know, it is not the blues exactly. The songs project a sense of hurt and vulnerability and a willingness to assume responsibility. That is far removed from the blues unquestioning embrace of reality. It is not jazz because every detail is carefully worked out down to the tiniest vocal aside or interpolation. It is simply a seamless body of work whose song titles and sentiments, shimmering melodies and intricately arranged effects all meld together to create a portrait of Bobby Blue Bland, the masterful exponent of a sophisticated new style. Like that is that mm. that is exactly what you've just described. And what, one thing I wanted to ask is, did you ever feel when you're kind of getting embedded in a certain scene or, or with a certain musician did you ever worry about getting stuck or did you always have a sense of detachment from it as well I, I had a sense of humble detachment i mean it wouldn't necessarily have been my choice to be detached but it would be the kind of thing where charlie rich where, where it's like solomon saying that's what i love about you pete you always take the long view and one time when he got mad at me he says but what i want to know and it because he had he had a certain romantic conquest in mind and i just happened to be there and was in the way and he says but what i want to know is what does pete the writer think about when he's alone in his room at night and <laughs> it's a question that has plagued me forever uh, but but i mean the point was i would you know i just i i had i ceased to be aware of the fact that i was only there at the sufferance of those people who had invited me in that this was not my world. I, mean, I don't know that I have a world, but that really isn't the issue. The real issue was simply that if I had given that up, I think I would have given up both the ability to write about it and and also my own sense of self. And so I tried to not in, in, in an arrogant way. I just tr- I I felt I had no choice in the matter. And Charlie Rich was, was said to me one time. He says, you know, the difference between us is I'm coming in at five in the morning and you're just getting up. He says, I don't think I've ever seen five in the morning, you know, from, <laughs> in the way yeah. that you have. And, and, but I mean, but, but I'm not, it's not that one is better than the other, but mm. the difference was always clear. And I think it's interesting in, in these times, particularly, people sometimes see it as a matter of race. They say, well, how could you write about this? How could you? But in fact, none of the worlds that I entered were my worlds. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, it's not as if I didn't grow up like Waylon Jennings or Merle Haggard. I mean, the worlds that they described to me were entirely different from the world in which I grew up. And the world in which I grew up wasn't, wasn't the world that I wanted to live in, really. So it, it, it's kind of a complicated thing. But the basic thing was, I guess, what you said, Jasper, was, was I, I didn't, I, you know, I suppose had I tried to imitate the way in which the people I was writing about lived their lives, maybe I would have gotten lost. But that wasn't what I, I was just there. And I was witness to a lot of things. I just, there's not a moment, even the bad moments, that I would give up or that I would not choose to. It just, it all adds to your understanding of people, of the way of life. I also, I think you're, you're also a fabulous reporter. I mean, I particularly loved your Howling Wolf chapter in Feel Like Going Home. And you've got this situation where you've written this piece for, the paper, for, the, for a paper. He wants to read it. He hasn't got his reading glasses with him, and he asks you get someone else to read it. But, you know, I, I just have to say one thing. I thought at the time that was because he couldn't read, but that isn't. He learned right. to read. He taught himself to read. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he took courses and stuff. So. <laughs> but, yes, I, you're right. I, yeah, no, I, I just I love this. And, and you say at the end of the one, is like James Brown, his vulgarity carries with it its own conviction. And the kid reading it is appalled by this. Right, and right. Uh, I, I, this, this kind of... You get what he's doing, but in describing it, you're absolutely horrifying. You're, you're actually your audience, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the very people you're, you're writing for. But he loves this. And then he goes on stage and acts out the part. It's just fantastic. <laughs> now, the last line, but he had to, he had to live up to his notices. Uh, it's just, it was just fantastic. But also, I, I love the fact that, you know, in a sense, you were offending white middle class right on taste by describing him truly. Mm-hmm. And and there's there's a bravery to that and an accuracy to that, but I also love the way you report on the response to your writing in that piece. I think that's great. I just loved it. Well, you know, you know, I mean, there are two things about that. I mean, the, the great thing was I said the wolf, uh, the wolf doesn't jive, and then the wolf is on stage. He says, "The wolf don't jive." His friends know that, and that to me was one of the highest points in my entire <laughs> life. Because, <laughs> I've been named as a friend, but but no, I mean it was like when I uh, and nobody knew it, of course. But but I have to say, w- my commitment, my in terms of honesty, is had it gone completely differently, mm-hmm. had Howlin' Wolf responded like, "Who the fuck do you think you are?" You know, <laughs> um, I, I like to think I would have reported that too. And if you read the end of the Henry Green piece, when encouraged by Henry Green's invitations. I write to him and I say, you know, I, I listen, I'm really sorry to bother you, but you kept saying, can you come see me again? And, and if you really meant it, I'd love to come see you again. And he sends me back a postcard or a letter, but he failed to put a, a, a postage stamp on it. So I had to pay the postage <laughs> in which he said, for God's sake, can't you leave me alone? You know, I did what you wanted, and, you know. And so and and so in a sense, the end of that portrait, you know, Henry Green is me trying to contend with you know, both at the time and 50 years later and 40 years later, no, 50 years later, you know, with the humiliation, the self-humiliation, the humiliation I put on myself. And so I feel like that's what you, you feel compelled to do. Yeah. But when I, when I taught, I taught writing, uh, creative writing for a while at Vanderbilt, which was fun. I mean, that was pretty recently. But one of the things that I said is that, you know, you have to use whatever you pick up, whatever you gain or learn mm-hmm. but 
and you can use yourself, but not to glorify yourself in many, I mean, in a sense, you, you, you can use yourself to illuminate the subject, yeah. but that you don't want to do more. And so in that sense, the self that you're portraying becomes a persona, which is true to who you are, but it's not everything that, you know, who you are. You mentioned Charlie Rich, Peter, and I just really wanted to sort of state that Feel Like Going Home really changed my appreciation of American music very profoundly, and particularly with someone like Charlie, who, without reading you on on Charlie, I would have just assumed was was almost like this M.O.R. kind of supper club guy, you know, and Mm -hmm. to go into his world and his life and his sadness and his drinking and the way you did that so gently and lovingly, and it, it opened up Charlie Rich's music to me in a way that might not have happened. And Bobby Blue Bland is like my just favorite singer of all time. Mm-hmm. So, so just to be able to, it was almost like having a, an audience with Bobby reading. I think I read the Living Blues piece first, and these characters just become such they such deep, deep feeling people in your work and i don't know many other music writers that have have managed to do that well thanks thanks now i i i want to i i mean again i'm talking aspiration but i always want to get to do as close to the full dimensionality as i as i as i can yeah i just got to say say one thing is sweet soul music had a terrible corrupting influence on martin and myself (laughs) because we were we were writing songs for our band at that time and we just wanted to become Dan Penn after that, mm. didn't we? It's we true. We went, it, 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 it kind of basically derailed our career, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to talk about Sweet Soul music and, and Southern Soul. Yeah. And, you know, we're all kind of equally obsessive, really, about that. And we've, as I mentioned earlier, we've included Charles Shaw Murray's review of that exhaustive history of this i mean what i wanted to ask about because we you talked a little bit earlier about race um it's always fascinating that for example like you know you know bill bill monroe was influenced by arnold schultz mm-hmm. that guy conversely how and wolf allegedly met jimmy rogers and learned yeah, how to yeah. yodel from him when he was like 13 you know so all that kind of cross-pollination was going on long before what I guess we might call Southern country soul. When you started thinking about sweet soul music, was it, and it, the subtitle was the Southern dream of freedom. Was it in your mind going to be as much about this, this extraordinary coming together of black and white musicians and often black singers and white players and producers and so forth, as it was a sort of, you wanted to, to describe the experience of that music. Was it, was it, was that so socio historical element? as important from the word go for you? No, I think in a way it was a discovery. It was what I, what I ran into. Uh, not totally to my surprise. I mean, I'll point out that in uh, Feel Like Going Home, I use uh, a brief portrait of Sun Records. This is almost 10 years before I met Sam Phillips. But I use Sun Records as a setup for the blues, really. And I see 
the music that uh, people like Charlie Rich and Jerry Lee Lewis were included, but also the whole Sun label and what they did as a uh, if it, it existing side by side with the blues, because that was my obsession, and I, everything had to be connected to the blues. But that was what I, that was my belief then, and it remains my belief now. And that was before I heard all the blues records, the recordings that Sam Phillips made, the great blues recordings. But I think with Sweet Soul Music, what it was was it was coming face to face with something. I mean, Donnie Fritz was the one who introduced me to Florence and Muscle Shoals and uh, introduced me to Dan and to Spooner. We all got together at Donnie's house, uh, which he was, he was, this is like waiting for Godot. He was waiting for John Denver to arrive (laughs) because Donnie had been out on tour with Chris Christopherson and while he was uh, gone and Donnie and his wife, Donna, the sweetest people in the world, but Donna had begun a house renovation program, and by the time Donnie came back from the road, they Donnie felt they could no longer afford the house, and he had rented it out to John Denver, who just never arrived. And so I was just <laughs> I was staying there at Donnie's house, waiting to go to Muscle Shoals, and we waited and we waited and we waited uh, until finally John Denver arrived, and we could go to Muscle Shoals, and that was where I discovered the thing. But when John Denver arrived, and Donnie was such a sweet guy. And he says, oh, man. And, but he was a very beat guy, you know. And so he says, oh, man, it's really good to meet you. And John Denver saying, great to meet you, too. And he says, you know, Donnie says, it, anyway, this went on like this. It was sort of a polar opposite this conversation. And then Donnie says, well, how's your wife? Because I guess he, well, we're divorced, you know. Greatest thing is when it's like Donnie's home, man. <laughs> so anyway, that was, our, that was our meeting of opposites. But when I went to Muscle Shoals, you know, it was this discovery of this whole world. And when I talked with Dan and Spooner, I mean, that was revelatory. I, I said how what an extraordinary event it was to meet Solomon Burke. Well, it was, you know, to meet all these guys too, and Dan in particular, mm-hmm. because it was such brilliance, such humility, such honesty, such intellect, and such, you know, everything, giving everything over to the appearance not of intellect, but of, you know, overalls and, uh, you know, Vernon, Alabama. So it, uh, it it was just amazing. And again, Dan's somebody who I've stayed in touch with to this day. And But getting to Muscle Shoals, you know, meeting Jimmy Johnson, meeting the rest of the guys, Jimmy being a guide, uh, it, it was really, it was a revelation. And so at that point, this is like what you were talking about before. It was like having... Uh, you deal with what you observe and you try to be open to everything. I mean, had I gone in there with an agenda, I would have said, well, that's not what's happening. You know, obviously it's, you know, it's all, it's all black and these guys are just hanging onto their Mm -hmm. coattails, but that wasn't what I observed at all. It was just a cooperative enterprise. And so then it was a question of really adjusting my sights, but adjusting my perspective. It, It was just an education. But you don't skirt away from some of the contradictions and difficulties involved in all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I mean, your fabulous chapter about Aretha being going to Muscle Shoals to start recording and how that those sessions fell to pieces absolutely points at some of the, the, the contradictions and the push and pull, you know, racial and otherwise, within that within that sort of situation. Oh, oh absolutely. And you could see it in the daily interchanges too. I don't, I don't mean, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. It's no. not that. It's just, but, but you didn't see the ideal vision that you, even in, in, let's say with a group like Booker T and the MGs who were always held up as a paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of thing. And, you know, I didn't write about this extensively, but I did write about it to some extent. And I tried to imply 
more mm-hmm. that the reader could get that uh, all was not skittles and beer sure. in terms of uh, and that there were conflicts there and that to some extent with some of the people there were conflicts that were not even understood but that were racial in, in uh, origin i think that's really interesting i think it's too easy for people to romanticize some of these things i mean you know you you clearly love it but you don't romanticize what what you're writing about and what you're seeing and i try i try not to <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna ask is it, it, something that fascinates me because sweet soul music was such an introduction to these well to to a lot of music amazing musicians but but being white and a obsessive Southern soul fan, I was particularly interested in people like Dan and Spooner mm-hmm. and Jim Dickinson and Donnie and so forth. And I wondered whether in any sense you projected your own, your own sort of white man's love of black soul onto these men as you were writing the narrative of the story. I, I don't think so. It was so evident. It was so manifest in everything that they did and said. This was their identity. This was what they loved. And again, without romanticizing it, mm-hmm. it was indivisible. It wasn't as if they were going to work every day. It wasn't like a you know, job that they were, they, they were passionately dedicated to what they did and they had a complete identification with it. Right. And so, so no, it, it never, I never questioned the sincerity you know, of, or or the their their wholehearted commitment that they brought they brought to it. I just noticed that Val Woolman t- took the cover picture of you like going home. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, actually, no. I was going to ask about Val. Woolman. I mean, one of the things that was so fabulous about those books was the attention that you gave to the visual side of it, particularly with Val's pictures. I mean, was that something that was important to you again from the get go? The visual side of the books was very important to me, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really recognized how it could be carried out until the first English edition of Feel Like Going Home, which had Muddy Waters on the cover, that picture I think yeah, you yeah. showed, and it had Val's photographs running through it. And it was at that point that I th- thought, well, this is really the model for the kind of the way I wanted. I, I hadn't liked the way that the uh, you know, American edition, the first American edition, feel like going home had been had been done, had been designed. Mm-hmm. And I took Val's. Uh, I took the this British edition of feel like going home. Uh, this is the wrong word. A prototype or model is a better word for it. Yeah. And uh, so when we came to doing Lost Highway. I had met this designer, Susan Marsh, a woman who's, I mean, we met at a Waylon Jennings concert. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so she did Lost Highway. And to some extent, we followed the model. Or I mean, I, I don't think we, of, of uh, the British feel like going home. It was interesting. It was done by Pierce Marchbank and Perry Ellis, who were both really good designers in London. At the time, I didn't. I didn't realize Pierce Marchbank is a name that sounds mm. familiar, but I don't mm. know that I ever. It yeah, was no, done. I hadn't realized that it was done. I I missed that fact. But it and it was it was but some... it was with no was with no input from me. Right. But it this this interspersing. I had always I had done that in the first uh, the American edition, but but not with anywhere near the elegance. Mm. And so Susan uh, designed Lost Highway, Susan Marsh, and I always tell her that you know that. 
She's the only reason anybody's interested in the books. People say content. Forget about the content. It's the design. <laughs> <laughs> and last time it was one of the most beautifully designed. Yes, yes it is. And she, but she's she's, she's done great. every she's done every book since '79, or nearly every book. And uh, we've worked together all these years, and and always worked closely together with the idea of presenting a visual analog mm. to what I'm writing about, and to using the photographs in a way that they respond both chronologically and thematically to what's being talked about on the page, not just yeah. throwing in a picture of Elvis in 73 when you're talking about Elvis in 55. Yeah, yes, exactly. But totally. it was through Sweet Soul Music that I met Val, right. Val Wilmer, mm-hmm. uh, who again became a very, very good friend, uh, yes. some, a very dear friend. She's fabulous. She's fabulous. Well, she's just yeah. stupendous at both uh, as, uh, I mean, she's a, you know, the most soulful photographer I know. Yeah. But, but as a writer, she's a tr- terrific. And she's yeah. just a, a, and a wonderful and a person of strong conviction, as I think you would. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that's safe, that's safe, safe to, to say. say. Yeah. <laughs> but, but so, so that, so that was, uh, well, I, I think also we, I got her photographs for feel like going home then. Mm-hmm. For the Amer- for the subsequent American editions and and sweet soul music, but to me they were just so integral and so eloquent, yeah. and so mm-hmm. soulful. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so yeah, it was absolutely. Uh, uh, but in a sense, you could say that it was through Val that I discovered the potential for having this uh, this kind of book. I mean, although she didn't design it, but sure. it was, the combination of her photographs and the design, the way yeah. that they were presented, really gave me a clue as to what I wanted to do. That's great. Peter, since you talked about Jerry Wexler, I think this might be a good point to hand over to Mark just to tell us about the week's new audio interview. Which is actually you, Barney, interviewing Jerry back in the 1980s. Gosh, I hadn't realised. 1985. Basically, it's the first half of what's actually two sides of an interview. The second half has gone missing, which is a shame. But this first half is great because he really talks very much about his youth, about as a kid loving Jimmy Lunsford's band and mm. loving those sorts of the, 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 those groups. He t- and he talks about the birth of R&B. He talks about Louis Jordan, Tiny Bradshaw, all of that sort of mar- personally period of music I absolutely adore, about how gospel starts creeping in, which is in a sense what we could describe as the invention of, you know, soul aspect of R&B. Funny enough, he talks about the importance of Western swing, of all things, which slightly kind of mm. slightly surprised me, but which I, I love Western, Western swing too, but um, I wasn't expecting that. Well, listen to the first clip. He, then he talks about going down south. His disco- he talks about the Atlantic records being moribund's the wrong word, but sort of dog days of 1961, mm-hmm. 62, when you know, the first wave of the R&B artists the Ruth Browns, the Ray Charleses, and so on and so forth had, had gone, feeling lost, how the label felt lost. And it was, in a way, the discovery of the South is what gave Atlantic Records its life again. So he talks about that. So let's, this is him talking about Memphis and Muscle Shoals and about that, that experience. It 
it's an awful feeling when you're sitting there with a band and a singer and you don't know the next thing to do because, you know, rigor mortis is set in. Yeah. You know, you sit there. Well, I got to say, after I went to, after I found Memphis and Muscle Shoals, I never experienced that again for the rest of my life. <laughs> rigor mortis. I love this rigor mortis is set in. Go straight to the next clip, really. He talks about stacks and about how, it was not production lines, the wrong word, but the sense of these musicians almost turning, turning up in the studio in the morning like they were going to the office. And, you know, it's a place where people went to work. So let's have, let's have a listen to this. So I'd go down there and I'd see these guys working, you know. I'd see Steve Cropper and Duck walk in and book them and hang up their coats and start playing music every morning. Like like contractors on a job, a plumbers, you know. Right. But it's still in many ways like that. Though. You know. Funny, and if they didn't have a song to play, they'd play some chord changes. Or well, Motown had some, something like that going in their system, which was very fresh and like a whole explosion of new music. And we were still doing this other time and stuff, you know. You've got to just, just the accent alone. <laughs> I could listen to that voice all day. <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah. I, he's, he's wonderfully self-promoting in a, in a kind of, you know, he has a very strong sense of his own ego. He, you know, he doesn't have a problem with sort of claiming credit for just about he anything. He was an alpha food. male, that's for <laughs> he sure. He was very, very <laughs> alpha, but marvellous. I'm sure, Peter, you'd agree that he... he he's responsible for so much of what we all love or, or was a facilitator for so much of what, what we love. He talks about getting, in fact, um, one of the things that really got him going was taking Wilson Pickett down to stacks, mm. that Wilson Pickett plays an oddly key role in the, the Wexler sort of story. You know, this very this young, very hip, really, you know, tough, quite aggressive, you know, northern R&B singer. Detroit, is that right? Wilson Pickett's a Detroit guy? He, he moved to Detroit, yeah. He yeah. Moved He's to, from yeah. Alabama, I think. Right. right. I, I mean, there's that great story. I think it's in, in your book, is it? He talks about um, looking out of the plane window and seeing people picking yes, cotton yeah, and saying, yeah. I don't want yes. to go back to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and, and we'll play the last, last clip. We'll play a clip at the end, which is about Sam Phillips, which is fascinating. But this is quite a long clip, and it's it's really great. And it's about his relationship as a white Jewish New Yorker to the south. Let's let's have a listen to this. How were you accepted in Memphis? Very nicely. Uh, okay, let me put it this way: in those years, there was always a big ambivalence. It was like a love-hate relationship. I was like a father with yeah. that, with all of the. The pluses and the minuses that go with that franchise. Yeah. They felt that I was bringing something to them and I was opening things up to them. They also felt that they were being patronized by me and they felt that they were children, you know, being manipulated by me and so on. And so there was this affection resentment, which probably still exists with some people, but with a lot of people, they're not mad at me anymore. How much of the redneck ethos did you detect when you first went down there? 
did you feel this any any kind of difference? Sure, I felt it because mm. only in this respect, it took me far too many years to get there unguarded. Yeah, you know, friendship. Right. It took too long, but it happened finally because I like I was always on trial, always on approval. Carpetbagger, New York Jew. That's a heavy load to yeah. carry down there. So it took a long time. I love that carpetbagger New York Jew. I mean, using the term carpetbagger is actually really significant because carpetbagger means something very specific to the South. It was the term used for about white business people, industrialists who fund into the South to make money after the Civil War. I believe that's correct. Uh, Peter will make correct me on that. But so him using the term carpetbagger is that is actually very on point in this particular context. Peter, what I mean, looking back now, what how would you sum up, Jerry? I mean, the the, the, the pluses and minuses. Do, do you have ambivalent feelings about Jerry Wexler? No, no, I, I, I should say that was a wonderful interview. And his, the reflectiveness that he gave to it, and the tone of the interview, I thought was was really extraordinary. Uh, and the, the thing about being a father and uh, being perceived as a father figure and all the pluses and minuses that attach to that. I love the way he that. called it a franchise. Yes, I was about what the word was, yes. <laughs> I've never heard father described <laughs> as a franchise, a franchise before. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, don't, I don't have any, I mean, I don't see that I'm in a position to judge people, you know, irrespective of whether I'm writing about them or not. But I do, but you know, I think it's a matter of observation. I think a couple of things about Jerry, which were interesting, were that he was a very canny businessman, but hated to be perceived in that way, even though that was part of his makeup. And that was really why he got mad at me after the publication of Sweet Soul Music. And like I say, it didn't stick. And if it had stuck, it would have. But he sent me, for example, the short stories that he wrote and had published when he was quite young, maybe when he was in Kansas. And that was his highest aspiration, I think, was to be a writer like, um, oh, I don't know, I, I can't think of who he is. Harry Cruz was somebody he admired a lot uh, okay. in, in recent. But the other thing about Jerry that I think is, is, is interesting is that he was extremely insecure and that despite the fact that he could project this image of strength and he could you know he could go into a snit and he wielded a great deal of power he manifested all and i don't again i'm not saying this is a judgment or as a you know i just think it was part of his makeup and he perceived ahmed as being someone who was the epitome of cool and somebody who's who in some ways he always felt he could never quite measure up to and was always putting him down in terms of hipness, I think. How interesting. And in terms of security. And so those, those are sort of my, and I, I don't know, I think Terry, if he was speaking as reflectively as he was in that interview, might acknowledge that. But right. I think in terms of his public image or persona, for the most part, he would choose to skirt that, you know, that particular thing. But he was a brilliant guy mm-hmm. and a guy who knew how to, interact with people and recognize the ways in which the interaction 
was not always what he might have liked, but he was able to deal with it however it came at him, whether it was, uh, you know, bringing Wilson Pickett to fame studio. That was after Stax wouldn't take Wilson anymore, right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. He didn't want to be a, a, a studio rental situation or whatever <laughs> the situation was. Yeah. It's a very interesting in looking to get lost where he goes to see Ray Charles and Ray Charles, and suddenly Ray Charles has had a breakthrough and, and understands what he must do. And Wexler just lets him do, and Armit Ertigan, they both see that Ray's right and they leave him alone. And let him do. Yeah, no, they they follow Ray down the street, you know, down, <laughs> and uh, Ray is just making his way as as he would all of his life, you know, without yeah. a cane, without just he's heading straight for the uh, for the club, so he can demonstrate for the song that he has. Be? I mean, that was you know, that, I mean, that was the whole focus was that particular song, the emergence of that of I Got yeah. a Woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, written, yeah. But they, but but I quote from Jerry's. Uh, I mean, I tried to make it. For instance, that was a, that was a new piece. I'd say more than a third of the book was new to new to book anyway, new to yeah. print. And that was a way. What I tried to do in that piece on Ray and the emergence of I Got a Woman was, in a sense, to take these three people that I knew, uh, Ray, Jerry, and to a lesser extent Amit, but to some extent, and to vivify them, to make mm-hmm. them live yeah. in that present. And one of the most telling stories, I think, is from Jerry's autobiography, where he talks about going to New Orleans with Ahmet for the first time, and just and Ahmet is sort of reading Jean Paul Sartre, and then just living on the hippest, you know, margins, and and the difficulty Jerry had in keeping up, simply in keeping up. And I, I think were they recording Big Joe Turner there? Or I, I I can't. They recorded Ray Charles too. Yeah. But it's a it's a wonderful self portrait in a way that should that I think delineates some of the sense of not estrangement but just just difference that jerry yeah. always felt well i got a woman way over town that's good to me oh yeah Sadly, we don't have time to talk about Elvis or, or Sam Cooke or Sam Phillips for that answer in any great detail. But just really to say the extraordinary kind of granularity of the detail that you go into, I think, is part of what makes your, your books so immersive and so riveting. I mean, I remember when I started reading the Elvis book, Peter, there was, there was a part of me was like, do we really need every single stone turned over do you know and then the, the, <laughs> the deeper i sank into it the more i just appreciated every little detail it just it became fully immersive and i kind of understand why i think you've made the decision not to, not to write another <laughs> you know t- 10 year long kind of bi- biographical project Ian, because it, it must be so all-consuming and, and i totally relate as a as someone who's written books as well is, is just that that obsession with not missing anything right what if that stone unturned is the one that really holds <laughs> the key that's right, the right. one that's got the key under it i mean i, like, I looked away there you know <laughs> <laughs> do you relate but, to that that kind of that restless quest you've got to find the the, the final missing piece of the jigsaw i think it, it, it isn't even so much that as yeah. it's just it's that 
that what you mentioned uh, before, that total immersion. And I had decided long before I published the Sam Cooke that that would be the last, you know, biography I wrote. Not because I was any, I was, I wasn't any removed in any way from the world. I wasn't removed, but I just, I didn't want to. It, 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 I at that point, it was twenty-seven years that I had been involved in writing bio, the biographies of three people uh, of Sam Phillips, Sam Cooke, and Elvis. And I just thought, all right, I've got to do something else. Just like I felt with Sweet Soul Music, I had to do something else. I, could, I didn't want to do another. It started out in my mind, Sweet Soul Music, as a collection of, of portraits, of profiles, like Feel Like Going Home and Lost Highway. Mm-hmm. And then very early on, I think before, before I started, I just thought, well, wait a minute, I don't want to just keep repeating myself. And so I thought I'm going to do it as a kind of narrative history. It was a loose narrative history, but that's how I conceived of it and sort of putting it together in in that way so that really only Solomon Burke, maybe there's another one, but is the only profile there because I just couldn't give up the, you know, the profile of Solomon Burke. But Joe Tex, for example, who's in the new book and looking to get lost is just not marginally, but I had a whole profile of him that I wasn't going to put into into uh, sweet soul music because that wasn't wasn't that kind of book. So anyway, so that's yes. I mean, I, I it was a very conscious decision. You know, I I just felt like no matter what comes along, the only thing that I was worried about was that I I had it in the back of my mind. What if Merle Haggard called? Yeah, yeah. You, said, you, you mentioned know, this in the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, this is, yeah. You know, Pete, I've been reading some of the stuff. You know that you've been writing. It's not. It's not bad. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's what he says. Yeah, I, you know, I think maybe um, we could do a great book together or something like that. I don't know if I could have turned him down, but fortunately, he, he never called. I knew he never would, but uh, <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> I so love the Joe Tex piece. I wanted to mention that yes. because I love Joe Tex. Yeah, yeah, and. There's fascinating stuff, and Jerry Wexler pops up in that. But there's this wonderful bit at the end where you describe how he pretty much sort of stopped after 1972, after I Gotcha, um, and dedicated himself for a while to you know his Muslim faith. And um, and then you describe these posters he used to put up, which was like you know he's coming to you know he's coming to preach, and his Muslim name that I won't attempt to pronounce. And then in brackets it said it said I Gotcha, comma skinny legs and all. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> it's just i adored that and the fact that he was like this muslim preacher but he was also still like this black cowboy with horses and walking around in the stetson in, on his texas farm i mean well, that's well, the yeah, whole yeah. weird contradiction in itself, <laughs> well and, and it? again it's like going down to see him in navasota it was such a thrill and staying with him in navasota uh, it was actually, I was there the day that John Lennon was killed. Yeah, you mentioned that on the TV. piece. Yeah. But, uh, and meeting his wife, Belilah. I think he was Joseph Haziz. It's Belilah Haziz, whom, I, again, I've remained, I haven't seen her again, but I've remained in contact with her and their son, Ramadan, uh, you know, really to this day. And in driving around Navasota, and his telling me uh, how he had to get out of Navasota because he could never, he could never, I'm using the wrong term, but he could never get it on with any of these girls because they were all cousins. He was related to everybody, so he had to get out of that. <laughs> or he said, or he point out, he says, you see that shack over there? I say, yeah, yeah. He says, you see that shack? That's where I was conceived. You know, <laughs> it's just, you know my, my mother and father got to death. Well, anyway, it, but, but it just, but the point was, he just was so 
fascinated by everything and so drawn to all these different things. And so anyway, just being there, meeting his uncles and his cousins and his aunts, and it, it was just a, a wonderful experience. And I just felt, again, that so fortunate to have been taken in, but it was so much fun. Yeah, and then yeah. and then it all went, went off the uh, rails with him. I mean, not long after I left, just his life just descended into this maelstrom. And what it was that caused it, uh, you know, it may have been drugs, he may have been ill. I mean, there were many causes of advance, and I have, Belilah talks a little about it in the book, in Looking to Get Lost, but it was it was like a sea change. He just became someone entirely different. And I saw him after that, and he was very kind to me, but he was it was like he was in a, an entirely different place wow. and a different person from the one I had met in Navasota. You had the better hold on, hold on to what you got. The last thing I'll say, because we really, we just got to move on is that you're probably the only person in the world who could have brought together in one room at one time chuck berry little richard jerry Lee lewis <laughs> and fats domino this is in 2011 i believe like facilitated by the rock and roll hall of fame i mean that must have been an extraordinary moment steve bang was really the person who, okay. who, who brought it about but i mean that is together. talk about mount rushmore <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you want to interview Mount Rushmore now, please? Yeah. I mean, how was that? I mean, that must have been really like, almost like an out-of-body experience, Peter. Well, it was really one of the, it was the funnest thing I've ever done, but it was probably one of the most challenging. I mean, it was really extraordinary sort of being in this crossfire between three <laughs> brilliant and highly opinionated and somewhat cranky guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Fats Not, was Fats accepted, right? No, yeah. Fats, Fats was the guest of honor, and he was he was never part of the interview process. Okay. And one of the most extraordinary things about the, I think it was three days that we spent together, was just the kindness and the sweetness that each of the other three, and particularly. Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard showed towards Fats, the love mm. they showed towards Fats, mm. and the extent, because Fats was having, you know, problems with um, dementia, or he just yeah. was having problems connecting, let's, let's just say. And yet he was still Fats, and he was still himself. And to watch Little Richard coax him out of this and get him to sing in this sort of sotto voce voice, along with Little Richard, Blueberry Hill, or one of the songs, and just the smile on the face would start, and they would talk about cooking, and it was always by Little Richard. And Jerry Lee was the same way. I mean, he showed such respect and such love. You've never seen, I'm sure all of you have seen Jerry Lee many times in many different settings, and my admiration for Jerry Lee has never flagged, despite the many <laughs> scenes and many settings I've observed. But, but this, was, this was a Jerry Lee Lewis I had never seen before. And at one point, Steve Bing, who, who really was the one who made it happen, had arranged for a piano to be set up in the room uh, because he thought they would play and, and uh, that somebody might want to play, and it, it didn't turn out that way. But Steve is saying to me, ask Jerry, ask Jerry if, he'll, if he'll play the piano, play one of his fats and and I said, and so I, I was really, this was like my first interview. I mean, again, I, I felt like being put on the spot like this is not what I want. I'm, mm -hmm. I don't want to be the host. I want to be the guest. You know, it's like, but I did go, I went to Jerry and I said, well, you know, would you think about playing piano? Could you think you could do something? 
And Jerry looked at me very seriously and he said, you know, I'd love to, but I don't think it's my place. I mean, if, if Fats asked me, I'd be thrilled to do it. I'd be mm-hmm. happy to do it. He said, now, this kind of humility is not something I have often observed <laughs> in, in, Jerry Lee, in Jerry Lee, but it, but it came out of them both. And so it, it was just, it was really, it was so much fun. I just want to mention the week's featured writer. Obviously, you are the featured writer in a bigger sense, but the featured RBP writer is Andrea Lyle. And I had lined that up before we heard that Howard Grimes had died. And so we'll talk about him in just a second. But there were there were two pieces, one in which Andrea essentially is a witness to this meeting between Mick Hucknall of Simply Red and Bobby Boo Bland. Mick Hucknall has flown to Memphis with the BBC crew to sit down with Bobby to talk about the album tribute to Bobby that, 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 that he's made. So there's some nice stuff. And then it almost reminded me of kind of the way Mick Hucknall talk, whatever you think about Mick Hucknall, the way he talks about Bobby Bland is, isn't so different from the way you talk about Peter, you talk about, just really wanting to draw people to the music of the people mm-hmm. you love. And, and in a way that's, that's what Mick did, you know, and he, and he says, he talks about, I just wanted to get Bobby's songs across to people who don't know Bobby's work. You know, it's a nice interview. And Bobby talks about the love throat, you know, the guy, yeah. the famous yeah. Bobby squall, uh, the gargle. And apparently that, that the, he said when he played in London, people were shouting out, do the love throat, do that <laughs> love throat thing. And he's like, I don't know what they were talking about. <laughs> so I love that. And then there's, yeah, well, so basically having Mark let me know that Howard Grimes had passed um, last night. So I fished out another of Andrea's pieces from the Memphis Flyer from 2004. And he just, he talks about being recruited by Teeny Hodges and eventually sort of taking over really from Al Jackson um, in um, Willie Mitchell's studio band and some really lovely quotes in there we have talked about high quite often on the rocks back pages podcast but i mean mark martin i know you're like obsessive yeah, fans yeah. of that band i mean was howard grimes in any way different from al jackson yes Jr.? yeah he's, yeah he's, okay. he's, 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 he's a different drummer i mean yeah al jackson had this very heavy slightly lazy backbeat there's a really big strong snare and howard grimes is a slightly lighter drummer i think he's underrated i think that a lot of people actually give al jackson too much credit for the stuff which is on high often the both can be drumming together on some yes, of the sessions do, do, doing subtly different jobs you know so it wasn't you know and or you know we were talking about the great southern rhythm sections and this is the other great southern rhythm section we talked about stacks we talked about muscle shoals well well willie mitchell's band were the other great southern rhythm section well yeah. i just love it i love the way he played i love the way that band sounded it's extraordinary yeah. just you know four or five people very mm. tight united focused Gorgeous sound. sound yeah i love the fact that they actually had a kind of second wind really recently with people going down to record with the high rhythm section so you've had robert cray did a very nice album there and uh, interestingly Frazy ford did a great record there called Indian Oceans, which marries a kind of indie, folky, 
bluesy, soul-y kind of voice with, you know, the Anne Peebles sound, uh, the Al Green sound. It's really good. Yeah, oh, I didn't know about that, I must confess. Yeah, just... yeah, and they get, they get co- you know, co-billing, the high rhythm section. Just want to yeah. quickly quote from this from this piece where Howard tells Andrea, you know, that Willie Mitchell said to him, Howard, when you play your drums, think about your woman. Think about the tenderness you have when you touch her. Make love to your drums the way you make love to your woman. So there's the secret. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th- I think that does point to sort of what I was trying to describe about him, him as a drummer. It's, he's a very subtle drummer. You know, I mean, you don't think of R&B drums as necessarily being the subtlest people around. Though, actually, I think, to be fair, I think Roger Hawkins is an immensely subtle drummer. But, yeah, Howard Grimes is a very, very subtle player. Wonderful player. Yeah. I I mean, just very briefly, because we really are running short on time, as I knew we would. Peter, I mean, was the the high sound that, 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 that Willie crafted and, and kind of patented, post-stack sound, I mean, was that for you a kind of evolution of Memphis soul into into the kind of mid-70s? Well, it, it was, and I guess I found the entree into that through the whole story of Al Green and the way in which Al Green was reshaped. I had seen Al Green when he didn't have the E on the end of his name. Uh, did you, really? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And back, where, back where did you see him with the E on the end of his name? Uh, he, he was, I'm sorry, he had the E on the end of his name. Uh, he was opening for Aretha Franklin okay. quite early on, and he's the only record he had out was Backup Train. Right. And right. Brief, <clears throat> in the brief okay. set that he did. So that's uh, pre he, that's that's pre Willie Mitchell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pre Willie. Was that in no, Boston? I, was that in? It was. It was yeah. in Boston. Yeah. It was. It was fairly. I, you know, it, it wasn't sixty seven, but it it was. I would guess maybe sixty nine or seventy. Wow, sixty nine, uh, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, whenever I don't know what the date is of Backup Train, but he was singing in the he sang Backup Train several times over the course <laughs> of the set, and in, and, and in, in the intermission, he was out in the. You know, uh, lounge singing back up trucks. No, he was, but he was he was selling selling the record. Selling he was singing, singing, yeah. yeah. So he sense. he. Uh, but the, the point was that he was there. He was this guy with a great voice, mm-hmm. but with a full throated. You know, a mm-hmm. a not, not common, but you know, a conventional soul voice in the sense. Yeah. And Willie saw the potential of a very different. Yeah. kind of presentation mm-hmm. and so to me that 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 uh, was just an astonishing thing and then the other artists like mm-hmm. ann peebles and sil johnson sure. and all the others it's not that they were less interest to me but this was almost emblematic yeah. of both of, of the high sound of willie's genius and as you go on with the out brain thing i mean to hear him do something like funny how time slips oh, away oh. Yeah. it's just just yeah. uh, and then i and this probably I'm sure you know it. It may not be on as high a level, but then when his cousin, or the person he names his cousin, uh, Junior Junior Parker, Parker, yeah, (laughs) he dedicates "Take Me to the River," another incredible sign. Yeah, and when Junior Parker does, uh, funny how time slips away, and talks about his dog Sam, and it's this long monologue, you know, about (laughs) Sam and the. I mean, you put those two together, you get two very very different approaches. But the, but you know, the, the Al Green and Willie Mitchell combination, and the in a sense, the visionary nature of what. Willie did, yeah. and the way in which he created an entirely different sound. And I would say, 
the subtlety here would yeah, be, yeah. you can't yes. yes. yeah. get it get close to the microphone and sing much quieter than you know mm-hmm. than you certainly would on stage yeah, and you get yeah. a completely different voice and that's what mm-hmm. you really hear, hear mm-hmm. with Al Green. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and obviously it, it and it appealed to something that Willie saw in Al Green. It was not, it was almost like a Sam Phillips type of moment. Yes. Where he saw yeah. the potential yes. that the artist himself didn't necessarily recognize or the truth the inner truth Mm -hmm. that the artist had Mm. not yet discovered and maybe would have but Mm. but hadn't at that point we lost two other great black musicians in the last like 10 days as well we, and we just need to touch on them we need to say goodbye to betty davis oh, and to phil mm, johnson and i thought girl. maybe i would ask jasper to just tell us briefly about this review that i know you added by neil Kulkarni of the betty yeah. documentary jasper yeah i mean first of all i mean i i love betty davis i've talked about it on yeah. the podcast before how much i love her music and how great an influence i think she was but it's a really lovely review of the they say i'm different film directed by phil cox yeah. that came out around four years ago. And Neil Kulkarni writes, crucially, the film emphasizes her political edge and exactly how punishing it was to be so far ahead of her time, so raw in her portrayal of black female sexuality and power at a time in American history and pop when black women could only be understood as either soulfully chaste or vulnerably available. Keeping things on a tightrope between revelation and deepening the intrigue, Betty, they say I'm different, ultimately reveals a heartbreakingly brute truth behind her, that here was an uncompromising genius ahead of her time whom a white male music industry simply could not understand or tolerate. Rather than be broken, she stepped out of the battle on her own terms. Yeah. Inspirational, poignant, and long overdue. And I think it's really interesting because, you know, the reviewer makes the point that having made these three albums or in fact she made a fourth album in 1979 but that wasn't released until i think 2008 or 2009 by light in the attic that that she just decided right that, that the world basically isn't ready for me and it's true that she kind of blazed a path that only really now you're starting to see with with young R&B musicians like Lizzo and Nicki Minaj mm-hmm, as a rapper, mm-hmm. you know, this ownership of sexuality and sensuality in music as a black woman, you know, that's something that's taking over the world now, but that Betty was doing like in the 70s. Yeah. And I think that's that's amazing. Not to mention all the influences she had on, you know, Miles Davis and the way he dressed, the way he made music, the way, you know, he lived his life, even in such a short period of yeah. time that they were together. You know, she was just a force of nature by all accounts. Fantastic. I remember Syl Johnson, who 
as we all know, is most famous for the track. I think it's also on High, of course, uh, mm. produced by, by by William Mitchell. But before that, he released the the track "Is It Because I'm Black" from 1969 on on Twinight, which has been sampled so many times on in hip hop and funk records. Sure. I actually love Lost the Count. Stuff. Yeah, you know his latest stuff. You know, Ms. Ms. Fine Brown Framing, things like <laughs> oh, yeah. that. I yeah. think that's that's fantastic. That was actually stuff. a hit, wasn't it? Yeah, in, in yeah. The, in, and it was almost like tops. Was it top thirty here? I think it's Martin that turned me on to that. Martin, you have no memory of that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so it's fact, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big Sil Johnson fan. He's made. Uh, he's one of these guys who straddled blues and R and B and had a quite a long, fairly ragged career. You can't say he ever sort of scaled the heights, but you know, he made some really great records. He popped up in different eras, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, Which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. So you know, a, another great loss. Another another great high artist is it because i'm black uh-huh. somebody tell me what can i do oh, well we are running out of time but mark have you got any <laughs> jasmine may have some other pieces mark have you got any pieces that that, <laughs> that you yeah. want to talk about this week? yeah i do i'll try and cut them down a bit but last week max jones interviewing john lee hooker and for melody maker in 1964 i just love this because this is the point when loads of bluesmen were being ferried over to england to play the club circuit yeah john says clubs like the flamingo you have to be amplified the kids they're enjoying the music too but they want to dance to move around. Because at that time, there was this idea that a lot of blues purists had, that electric blues was somehow disgraceful. Uh, And and to some extent, Max Jones is slightly in that camp. um, I'm going to be posting his review of uh, Muddy Waters in 1958, playing playing at St Pancras Town Hall, and being slightly appalled by the fact that Muddy Waters is playing electric guitar. So there's, there's, there's a bit of that sort of going on. Anyway, it's, it's, it's great to have an interview with Johnny Hooker from 1964. Sure. Very pleased about that. Nick Vinay, or is it Vinay? Vin- yeah, Vinay. Nick Vinay, interviewed by Maureen Cleave, Evening Standard, 1965. He says, I wanted to do something dishonest but legal, so I went into the record industry. <laughs> he also says, by American, <laughs> he says, by American standards, I'm rich. By English standards, I'm filthy rich. Uh, <laughs> a great character, Vinay. Yeah. Pete Johnson, the LA Times live review of The Naz from 1968, the LA Times. He says, The Naz, a smug Philadelphia rock quartet occupying the Whiskey O Go Go over the weekend, neither sings nor writes very well. Uh, hmm. I just take song. issue with that. <laughs> yeah, I, know you, I thought you would, Barney. Um, but uh, it's just great. Ed McCormack, uh, Rolling Stone, it's a piece about CBGBs. He talks to Hilly Crystal, the owner, and this is, Hilly Crystal says, pay particular attention tonight to a band called Talking Heads. Now there's one band I guarantee you're not going to believe. Mm. It's pretty terrific. This is Very good. Uh, and, and then his description of David Byrne is, he looks like the bastard offspring of an unthinkable union of Lou Reed and Ralph Nader. And he sings the way... <laughs> <laughs> and he sings the way... Sings the way Tony Perkins would have had Psycho been a musical. Um, <laughs> That's brilliant. Yeah. It's very, it's really close. Bass player Martina Weymouth, who sells shoes on 57th Street, doesn't expect success to come too soon. 
We're kind of a specialized taste, she admits. <laughs> I think it's, that's lovely. Very good. Fantastic. This week, I mean, this is just great. Um, and this is very much thanks to Max Jones's son, Nick, who's been feeding us some really good stuff. Uh, a 1948 interview with Hoagie Carmichael, which is... Wow. Pretty much our first Hoagie Carmichael piece on the site. Now, Hoagie Carmichael, for me, is a giant of the American mm. songbook. Mm. You know, yeah. I mean, just George yeah. in my mind alone is worth the admission, oh. you know. But he's, he's very offhand. He's one thing is certain. Write a song about Texas and you're apt to make a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> and all the hot licks in the world don't mean a thing compared with a good melody. In music, you've got to have a good melody. <laughs> Too right. Georgia, Georgia. The whole day through, just a little song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia on my mind. Maureen Cleave again, this is just fabulous. Simon Napier Bell, the Evening Stand, 1966. In those days, Simon Napier Bell was managing the yard, but younger listeners will probably know that he went on to manage Wham, among others. So he's, (laughs) he's got some backstory. She says, his looks, his manner, his habit of traveling first class in aeroplanes, his fairly well substantiated claim to earn £20,000 a year have convinced his colleagues in the record industry, many of whom dislike him intensely, that his family is rich or that he has money behind him. He's, he says things like, I've developed into a person with no, no inhibitions. I don't have any remote part of my personal life that I'm scared to reveal. He goes on to say, better to keep everything at a distance. I just have three or four sexual relationships going at the same time. So that hey. <laughs> so now you know that's Simon Napier Bell, Richard Goldstein reviewing Icantina Turner, River Deep Mountain High for Village Voice in '67. River Deep Mountain High is so overpowering it makes you forget about baroque rock and good time music. We got a great interview with. Uh, very early solo interview with Neil Young by Pete Johnson, the LA Times in 1968, which is just, I'm just mentioned because it's just a, gr- a great, great piece to, to have. Uh, very disappointing. Stephanie Mills, who's a singer I've kind of really kind of always quite liked, but she says, I'm not for wind driving a truck or a taxi because to me that's men's work. Women should always be ladies and there is a difference. She also says, a woman should be a woman and take care of her man, fix the meals, mend his shirt and so on. Oh, okay. well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I've got a couple of other things I could, I could drop at you, but I think I'll pass it over to Jasper at this moment. <laughs> Feeling slightly unclean after that. So, <laughs> <laughs> The first thing I'd like to mention of two, other than the Betty Davis piece that I added, is Keeping Up With Jones. Edward Helmore reports in The Guardian in 2003 on the spate of young uh, singer-songwriters showing up in New York wanting to emulate the success of Nora Jones, who's just swept the Grammys at this point. But I pick it because one David Sigerson is quoted in it, who we, of course, had on the podcast recently. Indeed. According to former industry executive David Sigerson, Jones's record conforms to a pattern. In the same way that yuppies like natural fibres and whole grain bread, says David, (laughs) they like records that are made with the same virtues. The record business always throws up something that is, by definition, unlikely. Whether it's Nora Jones, Buena Vista Social Club, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, there are records that become the in-house airplay special that everybody has when you walk into their house for dinner. (laughs) Oh my God. says Sigerson, it's unfair to Jones to give her all those Grammys. It would have been great for her to win a couple, but this makes it very hard for her. It's the nature of records like this 
activists that people develop a been there done that feeling about them which is quite astute actually that that mm. you know it, it, once you've been so successful in one thing you might get very pigeonholed but also that. you know she hasn't exactly vanished but she that it's that yep. record and not much else in terms of public, yep. public knowledge about her so he's spot yeah. on absolutely Second thing, Robert Glasper, I'd like Winton to listen to my iPod, is the headline. And it's John Lewis interviewing Robert Glasper, jazz pianist in The Guardian in 2007. And he's really interesting about, because it's around the time, well, one of the many times when Winton Marsalis, who's also on Blue Note, as Glasper is, has attacked hip-hop, describing it as musically worthless, lyrically offensive form of minstrelsy. Now, Winton was a huge influence, <laughs> a revolutionary figure in the 1980s who really galvanized an entire generation of jazz musicians, says Glasper diplomatically. <laughs> but I'd like to know what hip hop he's actually heard. You know, and he, and, uh, and, and he kind of goes into that and he, and he talks about basically wanting to play him a bunch of stuff that is actually great and not basing stuff on a, on a bunch of, you know, top 40 tracks that Winton might have heard on work. the radio. It wouldn't work. You could play him the really great early yeah. stuff and, or whatever <laughs> and Winton would still be a... Nasty snob, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but Glass was also really, really interesting about not wanting to just kind of fuse jazz and hip hop. You know, that th- that would be a bit corny. Instead, he wants to do his thing, but you know, with a with a knowledge of of hip hop rather than just trying to replicate, like you know, guys on deck sitting in with a piano trio or a jazz drummer who doesn't understand hip hop trying to play some lame funk beat and getting it all wrong. So that's just <laughs> mm. a, it's a, it's a, it's Great. a good interview. And, mm. and I think Glasper's a, a good player and I've seen him a couple of times live and, and he's astute and intelligent about the music that he makes, which is also pretty good to listen to in my view. So excellent. that's that. Lovely. I just wanted to bring things full circle by mentioning one piece that I added, which this will mean something to Peter, I think. It's Bill Miller's tribute to his friend and colleague, Bob Fisher, who mm. died recently, uh, died late last year. And I know Peter knows Bill very well. I don't know if you ever met Bob Fisher, but you'll know who I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 It's it's a piece that uh, Bill wrote for Now Dig This late last year. And it just starts off, Bob Fisher was inspired and encouraged by the late Charlie Gillett, who wrote that anyone who really likes black music should try to write about it. That may sound weird today, but long before the misogyny of gangster rap, British teenagers discovered rhythm and blues, a vibrant, borderline esoteric music, which often rivaled rock and roll for theatrical flash and mind-blowing excitement. See, he's having a go at rap as well. What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Gentlemen of a certain age. Uh, uh, But uh, Bill, Bill, I absolutely adore Bill Miller, as I know you do, Peter, and I know myself him. A, a great kind of help to you and you've been a great help to to bill over the years but it's a it's a it's an interesting piece as i say it takes us full circle back to the beginning because it talks about bob's membership of the leicester blues appreciation society <laughs> you know in the early 60s you know and so it kind of goes it goes back to those those days you know the kind of origin story of all of this blues unlimited we had pete wingfield on the other day talking about his soul beat fanzine from 1964 yeah it's the cradle of so much isn't it those blues yeah. appreciation societies and mm-hmm. and 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 so much which was happening here on this side of the Atlantic, Peter. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I mean, it's just, you know, I think that it points out the stupidity of snobbery going in either direction, either from the academic side or from people who, yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the inspired amateurs who come through all the time. And <laughs> yeah. without Blues Unlimited and Blues World and the Soul magazines, I mean, many of which uh, I cite in, in Sweet Soul Music, it's not just so much information was unearthed. 
but so much appreciation and dedication and love were expressed mm-hmm. in those magazines and started people off in the same way that Sam Charter's Country Blues, I think, started off yeah. so many people in, in their, their pursuit. And I love the that, you blues. know, and going back to the John Lee Hooker thing that I talked about just, just earlier, these bluesmen coming over to England, often utterly perplexed. And we got some interviews on the site where I think it's Jimmy Reed is complaining about English food, or is it, <laughs> like or is it the width, else was. Yeah. or is it the width of hotel beds that like single beds in hotels still in 1964? You know, yeah. I, I just love all this stuff. Anyway, fascinating, oh, fascinating. Cool. Well, appreciation and dedication—that's what you are all about, Peter. And um, so it just really remains for all of us to thank you so yeah. much for joining us today. Yeah. It's been yeah. such yeah. a privilege, an honour to have you here. You know, you you've made a massive difference to our love of music and our appreciation of it and dedication to it. You really have. Even if you've led us astray occasionally. (laughs) (laughs) Even if it's your fault that Mark and Martin went to Muscle Shoals. (laughs) (laughs) But that's a lovely thing to lay at your door. But anyway, I mean, cannot recommend Looking to Get Lost highly enough, or of course, any of your other incredible books, almost all of which I have read. Uh, I haven't read your first novel, Almost Grown, Jasim was titled after the Chuck Berry song, but I've read pretty much everything else. So thank you. Well, thanks. A collection of stories, the Almost Grown. Almost Grown, a collection of stories. Okay, yeah, yeah, cool. which I wrote. Right. Yeah, but, um, 64. Yeah, no, no, listen, it, this has been great fun, even if we haven't quite reached the halfway mark. <laughs> <laughs> all right well part two will line up for the part. line that up for the future uh, but I, <laughs> I do and i appreciate jasper walking me through and giving me the courage to uh use these uh not, not zoom but the um zencast new, new uh, technologies yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. no thank you so so much it's been a uh, real it's pleasure. been great it's been lovely Thank you. Mark, you're going to talk us out with just something about the final clip of Jerry. it was basically Wexler on Sam Phillips and his experience there. It's it's terrific stuff. Great. And on that happy note, bye. 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 Thanks, Peter. Thank you. So Sam was one of the first white people to become black music. Sam knew what the hell he was doing. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. This is true. Record producers don't know how other record producers work or how they do it. Or I'll tell you one thing, though. It can't be luck if they keep doing it no. for 5, 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. So there's a great thing, you know, it's like the kangaroo jury that's always sitting in this business explaining about who really does it at such and such. Well, it's really the engineer at that place. So, oh, man, they got this one black guy in the back, you know, who sweeps up, but he comes in and he picks the takes. Or uh, it ain't the boss, it's somebody, some little road guy, or it's this and that. It's all horseshit because nobody knows. Mm. Nobody knows who does what because we don't go to each other's sessions. Right. You only go by the result. Yeah, I've been, I've been on session with Rick Hall, I've been on a lot of sessions with Chips and, of course, with the Muscle Shoals guy. And I've seen the Rolling Stones in the studio. They know what they, they know exactly what they're doing. So Sam Phillips has got to be one of the best ever. You women have heard of Jalopies, you've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. 
That was Jerry Wexler in conversation with Barney Hoskins in 1985, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to a special guest, Peter Guralnik. Looking to Get Lost, Adventures in Music and Writing is published by Little Brown and available now. You can visit Peter's website at petergoralnik.com. The hosts are Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com. (laughs) 